Thursday Finance. And after Easter, I don't know whether that's made too much difference, Stephen Pritchard, to the markets and uh, the world of finance. No, it hasn't really. Two short weeks, that doesn't make much difference. Hasn't made much difference at all. Okay. The rest of the world goes on, I suppose. The rest of the world goes on, but you're back, so that'll make a difference. (laughs) Yes, of course it will. So what's happening with commodities? Um, uh, Commodities, not much this week. Um, The gold price was... was, um, down um, half a percent to seventeen hundred and twenty-seven dollars fifty-two cents an ounce. Uh, the copper price was up one point six six percent to eight thousand eight hundred dollars a ton, and the crude oil price was down two point seven percent to eighty-eight dollars and thirty-seven cents a barrel. Um, the currencies, um, the the Australian dollar was up against the uh, US dollar to seventy-seven point one nine. Um, we're up against the British pound to 54.81 pence and we were up against the euro to 62.83 euro cents. Mm. But only, there are only, we we're talking about movements of less than half a percent here. Hasn't really been any big no, swings in no the currencies over the last little while. You know, um, a month ago, for example, we were at 77.19 US cents and a month ago we were at 77.57 US cents. So, so, you know, it's not going to pay for the holiday, that currency movement. Um, <laughs> the All Ordinaries is, is back down below 6,000 since you've been back. We've kind of dropped away oh. last week, so we're oh. back below 6,000 again. That's so, really on the week, there's not much movement on the week. We're 5,863 uh, closed yesterday compared to 5,868 the previous week. So, there's not much movement there in the All Ordinaries. Uh, the SP 500 was uh, 2,644. Um, which is pretty similar to last week. Uh, the FTSE was 7,034 compared to 7,056 last week. And um, so overall, the world equity markets are pretty no movement at all, just like we said at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, BHP, a couple of yep. interest, local interest stocks. Um, BHP, $28.71, which was up 1.7% on the week. Um, CBO is $72.80, which, which, which is um, the first time in a while that it's actually gone up um you know things are coming out of the royal commission that are kind of unpleasant for cba um and the other banks um nib uh, was down uh, 13 cents of the week to six dollars 25 and and telstra's uh continued its downward um trend of three dollars and 13 down another cent on the week uh-huh. So a month ago, it's dropped almost 10% of the month. I mean, it was $3.32 at the beginning of um, March, and we're now down to $3.13. I suspect at this rate, it's not long before we're going to see a two in front of that. Ah. Mm. Mm. Yes. Any mm. other predictions as to what's going to happen to it oh. as a stock? <laughs> uh, well, mm. they need to stop sending all their customers off to... Uh, call centres in the Philippines and they get people who speak English might help. <laughs> oh, I know, we've moved, moved, moved all our business away from them. There's mm. only the mobile phones left now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at their market share, I think that's, we're not unusual. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So uh, Newca- uh, the fuel price in Newcastle is $1.35 a litre compared to $1.36 last week. Oh, this it's, is because the oil price dropped, is it? No, oh, no, it's coming you'd say it's coming off the holiday break but but it never went up before the holidays oh, that's good yeah well i wasn't here i suppose surprising someone else commented <laughs> on that as well i think um uh dollar 27 the in sydney 
Now that Sydney's down almost five cents a litre, but we aren't compared to a dollar thirty three last week. And mm. the diesel price in Newcastle is a dollar thirty seven point five, which is a dollar thirty seven last week, and a dollar thirty six point one in Sydney. Mm. So pretty much, pretty much movement, no, no movement on anything really. Okay, that's Pretty the situation of the market and the com- uh, currencies and commodities. Thursday, finance, and it is the time of day we take a look at the market, and we do it with Henry Jennings from the Marcus Today Financial Newsletter. Henry. Stephen, how well, are you? I'm good. You're back from camping. I am back from camping, yes. Had a lovely time. Always good to get out into nature. Yes, and not, not much has happened while you've been in these last two weeks. <laughs> markets is that there's always something happening. Oh, there's something, but there's not, there's not a lot. Well, we had a 700-point um, movement last night in the Dow. Yes. That's, that's pretty big. We've had trade wars. We've had tariff wars. We've had uh, blue sky investments in serious problems. Yeah, we've had lots of things going on. It's been, it's been fun and games. So... Santos has got another offer at 650. It's a big offer. It's a very big offer. It comes, um, I guess, at an interesting junction. Um, we, uh, we had a, a change of government in South Australia, and I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, Harbour Energy, run by a lady by the name of Linda Cook, who's an experienced operator, um, and uh, this is a private equity company bid, as you say. $6.50 for the company. Um, big price, very big price. The uh, the big question, of course, is will they be able to navigate the politics of all this? Um, Santos is almost icon or iconic in South Australia. Um, it's certainly a, a massive part of the uh, energy puzzle that is uh, on the east coast of Australia. Um, so the government is going to get involved. The FIRB is going to get involved. The Treasurer will get involved. Uncle Tom Cobbley and all will get involved. Um, so, yes, it's, and you can see that by the share price, which currently is $5.82. Um, and that compares to $6.50 in the bid. So this has got a long way to run. They've also got a big Chinese uh, group that's shareholder, ENN and Honey Capital, uh, own 15% of the company. So it's possible we could see a, a, another bid from them. Um, so lots of possibilities at the moment, but um, politics is going to be the hard one to satisfy all those national interests in terms of uh, energy pricing. So we'll probably be still talking about this at Christmas. Um, they're talking five months, so what's that, September? Oh, close. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if we're talking this at Christmas, to be honest. And then Blue Sky. Uh, Blue Sky is this alternative investment manager out of Brisbane that, that's done phenomenally well. Up until yep. up until last week. <laughs> yes. Um, well, the, the clue is in the name of the company. Yes. It is Blue Sky Alternative Investments, and as soon as you see the word alternative, it basically is code for very hard to value properly. Um, and these these alternative investments frequently can only be valued at two points in time. One is the time when you buy the uh, asset, and the other point is when you sell the asset. And those are the two fixed points. It's a bit like house prices, really. Yeah. Um, you know, they go up and they go down in theory, but the practice is that there's only those two points when you get uh, realization of the of the pricing. So um, there's a mob called Glocus or Glu- Glucus. Uh, um, Very in difficult the US. to pronounce. 
yeah, in, in the U.S. who famously predicted uh, amongst they, they made lots of predictions, but they forecast that uh, a company called Quintus, which was involved in Sandalwood, um, is was worth zero. And of course, the company came out and said, "Don't be stupid. It's not worth zero. Um, it, we're doing fine. Thank you very much." Unfortunately, the mud stuck, and they went into administration. So they've had a, a serious win in that one, and they've come out and said the blue sky is only worth two dollars sixty-six. And it was trading as high as uh, it got up to fourteen odd dollars at one stage. Um, it's currently knocking on the door of eight dollars. Now these guys um, short shares. That's their basis of operation. That's their mo. They short shares, and they do then tend to um, issue these kind of uh, reports. They're not governed by ASIC. They're not governed by anybody because they're U.S. based. It is an opinion piece. They make it very clear when you read the disclaimer that you know they're basically um, they're doing this to make money, um, and uh, it's up to the company to basically refute it. Now, Blue Sky have tried to refute it, but. Unfortunately, it's just muddied the waters more than anything else. They came out yesterday, um, having returned from a trading halt, fell 18%. They're down 7% today. Um, the U.S. mob in California, uh, Glaucus, um, have um, issued a rebuttal against Blue Sky's rebuttal. So things are heating up. And the issue is that these investments are very opaque. Mm-hmm. Even the fact that these guys have gone round to brokers, and I just saw a mate of mine on Sky TV saying that you know they. they They've been round and they were talking to brokers um, about the business, but even then they wouldn't give details of their investments or how they value them. So, you know, they're not doing themselves any favours at all at the moment. Luckily for, for retail shareholders, there was a, a share purchase plan where they could luckily buy shares at $11.50 uh, to raise $25 million for Blue Sky. Um, and luckily, bearing in mind the shares are now $7.85, um, Blue Sky have cancelled the SPP and they're going to send everyone their money back, which is jolly good news for shareholders. And hopefully um, some will not be stuck with the stock for too long. Mm. So, yeah, not much fun. It's unusual that they'd cancel SPP, so... Yeah, well, it's a sign of goodwill. They did raise $100 bucks in a placement to institutions and sophisticated investors who aren't looking quite so sophisticated now because they're long the stock at $11.50, and that has not changed. They haven't cancelled that. Um, they've just cancelled the SPP, which, um, according to the company, because the um, report from the U.S. hedge fund or research house came out during the pricing period, um, so it upset the whole pricing and it upset the market clearly. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's not pretty. They're nearly down eight percent now. So they need to come a lot more, become a lot more transparent with their um, with their valuations and how much money their assets under management and uh, that they have uh, reported. It has been a market darling up till now. So AGL's previously said that the Dell Power Station is losing hundreds of millions of dollars a year. But now someone wants to buy it off them for a billion dollars, but they don't want to sell. I wouldn't be able to sell it fast enough. Well, yes and no. It's still part of their kind of um, their their grand scheme and plan. Um, I guess it's a little bit worrying for the market that you've got the government telling a privately owned uh, or shareholder public company um, what they should be doing with their assets. Um, that's and, and, and lining up bidders to buy assets of them. I mean, it's 
Malcolm Turnbull is playing the investment banker again without really a mandate to do so. So um, I guess from, from an AGL's perspective, they have uh, Liddell as part of their mix. They are going to replace it, and, and I think they're, um, they're putting some, some recycling or some sort of clean and green technology in there as well. Um, so the other thing, of course, is that if you take Liddell out of the system, then you would, in theory, uh, you may get higher power prices, which AGL would then benefit from for the rest of their power production. So um, it's, I guess it's a little bit of a cynical exercise from, from AGL. But this, I think Liddell's been around for 50-odd years. It's, you know, it's all very well for, um, for Linter to say, hey, you know, we'll, we'll pay a billion dollars for this, but they probably have to spend another $800 million just to upgrade it and keep the thing running, which does kind of beg the question of, of you know, is it really worth a billion? Um, so uh, certainly if you look at AGL's share price, which is down, you think that the market's already given its kind of um, verdict that they're not going to get a free billion dollars for a 50-year-old power station. So, yeah, there's a lot more to run with this. Again, I guess it's like um, the Santos bid has become a political football because it plays into this whole um, energy and rising costs and manufacturing costs, etc., 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 which the government is clearly um, trying to, uh, to break that nexus of these rising energy costs. Yes, so this will be still talked about at Christmas as well. Oh, I suspect this one will run and run and run. Well, it could be that AGO just say, you know what, a billion dollars, thanks very much, we'll take it. You're, mm-hmm. there's, there's the keys, you know, you own it. But um, there's a bit, there'll be a bit of due diligence to be done by Alinta. So, um, yeah, uh, fun, all fun. But I think, yeah, Christmas, you're right. Yeah, and... Uh more confirmation that retail and fashion industry is tough with uh, H&M Australia cutting prices to clear stock because their sales shrink. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the H&Ms and all these kind of the Zaras and the, you know, have become, um, you know, they were, they were the, the poster child, yeah. I guess, of the uh, poster children of the, uh, of the retail space, and they popped up in, in some of these malls, um, killing local retailers with their you know, cheap and cheerful pricing and throwaway stuff. And that, that's the problem, I guess, now with, with, uh, with fashion, is it's, it has almost become throwaway. The kids just want it for the selfie. And once you've worn it for the one selfie, you can't wear it for, wear it for another mm. selfie. I mean, heaven forbid you wear the same outfit in two pictures. Mm. Um, so um, you would think it's a, it's a relatively okay environment for retail, but retail is such a such a tough game. And uh, you know, we, we've we've seen um, some win, some lose. Some people like Lavisa have done it very well. They're, they're Jewelry, their cheap uh, sort of jewelry aimed at the teenage market, has been an extraordinarily successful model. Um, I think I looked at their margins; they're around eighty-six percent. You know that, that gross margins, eighty-six percent. That's a pretty good business. And uh, I know that when I do my Mark One eyeball research and wander past uh, a Lavisa in a shopping mall, those few times I go to a shopping mall, there's always people in there. Whereas you look in Maya or David Jones, ghost town. Well, even if you went into my, you'd be lucky to find anything in here. Well, don't get, don't get, we've, we've talked about uh, my, don't get me started on my, but um, yeah, but it's, um, but so yeah, retail, very topsy-turvy kind of uh, industry, some win, some lose, um, but there's uh, just been more losers at the moment. So I, I learned something here this morning, Afterpay, which has been this great growth stock that everyone's been talking about, where you can basically put stuff on a kind of yep. lay-by and take it away. Apparently you can also do that with alcohol. 
Yeah, no, it's good, isn't it? I didn't know that. And, um, and you can call yourself Mickey Mouse. I know. Well, this, can this, you this, believe there, it? There was a report out that um, basically underage kids had been uh, not only buying alcohol online, but using Afterpay to, uh, to to buy it, which which is great. You, you, you've spread your cost of your bottle of vodka over four over months. four easy payments on your dad's credit card. Um, and there's also been uh, people signing up with the name Mickey Mouse. Now, the, the, I guess the, this is means that Afterpay have to tighten up their um, their regulations. But they did they did come out and point out that their um, sort of their losses um, through fraud or you know delinquencies or non-payment were pretty small. Um, I think 0.7 of a percent, um, just from memory. So very much, uh, very small in, in, in the big scheme of things. But of course, you know, this, this is another one of these uh, high-flying stocks that mm-hmm. sort of came back to earth with a bump, and everyone sort of saw that maybe the uh, the emperor doesn't have as many clothes on as everyone thought. Um, the stock did peak around nearly eight bucks, I think, and it's now down to 580. Um, these guys. They do seem to be everywhere, especially online. Yeah. Everything I look at at the moment, maybe it's just me. I was looking at a new tent because my 25-year-old super-duper tent seems to be um, suffering a little bit at the moment. But um, yeah, there you can know, there's afterpay, and there's afterpay here, and there's afterpay there. So um, it's it's almost become a verb. Um, it's almost become part of the, the lexicon, I guess. Um, so it's it's an interesting business model, and clearly they need to tighten up some of the regulations and rules and uh, identification kind of uh, things that they need from people in, in, so, so they can buy their bottle of vodka on four easy payments. It's just amazing, isn't it? So, yeah, so it, it is. Get, it's quite weird. Can you buy, uh, can you subscribe to Marcus today on four easy we should payments? Do, we should, yeah, we should do that. So we should have the afterpay for Marcus today. That even rhymes. Um, you, 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 can, you can certainly pay by the month, but you can sign up at marcustoday.com.au for a, a a two-week free trial and, um, yeah, and read all about the uh, world of finance and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll make you some money in the process. I'm sure you will. We'll see you <laughs> next, talk to you next week, Henry. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Henry Jennings, and he is the um, senior commentator at Marcus today. Thursday, finance, and uh, we're looking at uh, death benefits from superannuation. Ian Moranti from Nationwide Superannuation has joined us. Stephen Pritchard, over to you. So um, death benefits are, are can be quite complex at times when they're involving a superannuation fund and a lot of people don't even know... Um, you know what that involves, and and what type of death benefits a super fund may may be in a position to pay. So I thought we'd get Ian along today to talk about that. So, um, so a death benefit is a is a payment from the superannuation fund that can can consist of um, your account balance plus um, any insurance. Yes, correct, Stephen. Yes, it it is an area that, uh, as you've mentioned, can either be a very simple, straightforward process, or the other end of the scale it can be a very complicated, drawn-out process with a lot of uh, acrimony, uh, particularly if you have different members of a family have different views on how the benefit should be paid and who should receive it. So uh, it's an area where uh, a member of a super fund would be wise to do some pre-planning, some thinking about uh, their own circumstances and how a death benefit might be paid. Uh, in the unfortunate event of their death. I mean, something we hope don't have, doesn't happen, 
uh, but you can't get any guarantee on that. So you need to make some planning and provision for that. So your death benefit, uh, I mean, people know about, you know, hopefully getting wills drafted, but a death benefit on a superannuation, you know, doesn't automatically form part of the will, a part of your estate. Yeah, that, that's correct, Stephen. And that is where uh, one area of contention or, or potential source of problems where people believe that whatever is in their will will determine the uh, distribution of their superannuation benefit. But uh, the trustees of a superannuation fund are required to comply with uh, legislation uh, and trustees and those uh, guidance for the trustees say that benefits must firstly be paid to a dependent Mm -hmm. and there's a a reasonably strict uh, definition of who a dependent is. The purpose of superannuation is to provide retirement in income so the premise is that if a person dies before retirement there is still a need for some income to be provided to dependents or those who might have been uh, relying on the income of the of the member. So that's the premise on which the uh, payment of death benefits is the, uh, structured the way it is. And then a person can have more than one dependent. And then, they certainly can. And then the trustees have got discretion in certain cases. So, so the legislation was, was kind of... Um, amended to try and overcome this by by bringing in some um, um, death nominations. So how do they? So there's a binding one and a non-binding one. So can we talk about how these work? Yes. The, uh, well, first of all, if there's no nomination whatsoever, then the trustees uh, undertake a search to try and find as many uh, eligible dependents as they can. To assist, though, if the member has a, a proactive uh, approach to uh, the distribution of their benefit, uh, they can fill out a non-binding uh, death benefit nomination, which gives the trustees guidance as to what the member was thinking as to how the benefit would be paid. But at the end of the day, the trustees must uh, pay the benefit according to the guidelines on dependents. So a non-binding uh, nomination gives guidance but the trustees aren't required to follow that but with the binding death benefit nomination the trustees are required to follow that provided though that the nomination is valid at the date of death of the member and most uh, binding nominations only are valid for a three-year period and that's because a dependent might be a dependent at one period of time, but as they grow up, as, as children grow up and become adults, they may not be a dependent anymore. So uh, the binding nomination uh, will be followed, provided it is valid still at the date of death of the member. And, and there's a process for those. They have, to be, they have to be witnessed. That's right. They have to be in writing and they have to be witnessed by two um, suitable uh, witnesses who aren't beneficiaries of the uh, the benefit, and most importantly, they have to be given to the trustee. Yes. So if you prior do this, to the death, prior to the death. So yes. if you do this binding death nomination and put it in the drawer with your will, not it's, effective. It's not valid. Yeah. 
Yeah. No. So it has to be given to the trustee. So yeah. the trustee's got notice of it before you, you pass away. And then I suppose the trustee has to acknowledge that, do they? Well, I don't think they're well, uh, Most funds now are putting that uh, information on the member's annual statement, and that's uh, firstly an acknowledgement that it has been received, and also it's a reminder of uh, the last bit of information that was provided to the fund so mm. that you can check and see if it's still up to date. Mm. It's Thursday Finance on 2NURFM and we're taking a look at superannuation benefits and in particular the death benefit from superannuation. Uh, we're doing it with Ian Moranti from Nationwide Superannuation. So, so how can how are the death benefits actually paid from a superannuation fund? Um, the benefit payable is depending on the rules of the fund. Uh, the most common form of benefit is just a lump sum uh, made out to people, uh, particularly if there's a number of people going to benefit from the death benefit. Um, lump sum tends to be easier. People take their their share or their portion and do what they want with it. If the benefit is payable to an individual uh, or a single individual, then it may be um, suit their circumstances to have the benefit paid as a an income stream or a pension. Right. So the spouse could elect to uh, the spouse could elect to obtain an income stream. Yes. And what about minor minor dependents? Uh, it would depend on their circumstances, and they'd need to take into account the. Um, how that income stream is going to going to work going to be taxed so, as well. Yeah. Tax. So once we're getting it, so what we're saying here is anything other than um, a simple lump sum benefit to a single beneficiary, there's a number of issues that you need to get some advice on. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so, and then that, that comes on to our next point is um, superannuation um, death benefits. Um, are they taxable? Um, depending on who they're paid to and. Unfortunately, the definition of dependents under superannuation law is different than dependents under taxation law. So uh, if someone makes an assumption that they are a dependent under super law and are going to receive a benefit and not pay tax on it, uh, that may not be correct. So they need to uh, get advice on that, particularly for a dependent who is an adult uh, child dependent um, they chances are they'll be paying tax, uh, whereas a younger child uh, dependent would not be. And and there's been some cases on this recently, I know, and um, this issue of what's a dependent and what's not a dependent can become quite complex, particularly in that when you've got when you've got um, an older child looking after the parent or something or other, and yeah. they're doing that full time, and they may in fact be a dependent, but but. Yeah, so that that once again, you know, someone under eighteen, straightforward, they're a dependent. Um, the spouse is always a dependent, but there's all these grey areas like students who are over eighteen, but 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 are living at home, and you're paying while they go to university, or they've got a part time job. All these gets into kind of grey areas. Yes, yeah. that that's part of the discovery process that the trustees go uh, into when they're deciding on the benefit. Uh, or who should be the recipients of benefits? Uh, and, and some some people, even even young even young people, because because of the insurance that's in in the fund now, can have a, a not um, unreasonable death benefit. Some 
a hundred thousand wouldn't be unusual for Correct. for yeah. someone who's twenty two and unfortunately something happened to him and and so um so so what happens if um, if the, the the funds discovered that someone's died by looking at an advertiser your funeral notice or something and what happens if no one claims the death benefit uh, unfortunately if uh, the benefit must be claimed, which means that someone must take some proactive action to uh, approach the fund to have it paid. If it isn't uh, paid, it ends up uh, going to the tax office, and uh, unfortunately the figures on that are fairly uh, frightening. Uh, Just in New South Wales at the 30th of June last year, there were 828,875 unclaimed superannuation accounts. Mm-hmm. Uh, now they wouldn't all be death benefit, but I suspect that quite a number of those would be, and the total value of that was seven hundred and three million dollars. So, uh, and it's a fairly worrying statistic in the fact that far too many death benefits do end up uh, unclaimed uh, in the care of the tax office. When I'm sure that there would be beneficiaries who could use that money and do a lot more with it than the, than the tax office is going to do. So that's why it's really important for members to do a bit of pre-planning in this area and, uh, you know, unfortunately think about what would happen and what would the circumstances be of dependence if they were to, uh, to pass away. Yeah, I mean, I've heard stories that the fund sends out the paperwork and it just never comes back. Yes, we've had examples of that, unfortunately, where... Uh, someone might move. Uh, it's uh, particularly if you have a single superannuation fund member living on their own. They're relying on a, a distant relative to do, <coughs> uh, you know, help out with with paperwork, etc. Okay. Well, thanks for that, Anne. We'll talk to you in a month or six weeks again. Yeah. Mm, there's care. so much to know about superannuation. Yeah. Ian Moranti from Nationwide Superannuation. And that brings um, Thursday Finance to a close today. Thank you, Stephen Pritchard. We'll be back with Thursday Finance next Thursday after the midday news.